Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Tama Churchhouse, the COO at Cumberland Labs. Cumberland Labs is a global blockchain incubator comprised of blockchain developers, product managers, researchers, traders, and former founders. The team's mission is to create and support projects that advance the applications of blockchain and use this technology to solve real-world challenges. In this conversation, Tama and I discuss getting Bitcoin in 2013, lessons learned as a VC in the EOS ecosystem, what has surprised him during his tenure in the blockchain industry, the four P's of incubating a new business, recently launched Cumberland Labs products, and more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Tama, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we are joined by Tama Churchhouse, the COO at Cumberland Labs. How are you doing this evening, Tama? Good, thanks, Dylan. How are you? I'm doing well. Got really excited for this conversation when I was sort of digging into your background and a lot of the cool things that your incubator is working on, as well as just kind of the relationship with the market-making team behind Cumberland Labs at DRW. But before we jump into all of that, you have kind of a really interesting background in traditional finance and in the banking sector. So before you got into the crypto space, you were a vice president at GP, JP Morgan. Can you just share a little bit about what your genesis was into the finance and banking space before you got bit by the crypto bug? Yeah, sure. So I'm kind of Hong Kong born and bred. I've lived here for most of my life. So finished university in London, came out to Hong Kong and, you know, really didn't know what to do. So my old man, who was ex-banker, said, you know, why don't you go into banking? I said, sure. Joined ABN AMRO and then JP Morgan, predominantly focused on structured derivatives. So kind of multi-asset derivatives, rates, credit, FX, that kind of thing. Did that for about 10 years. Just got rather bored of it, to be honest, and then left to join a family office in a CIO role and was managing money, kind of a public book, a private book, and a number of businesses. But, um, you know, we had a small venture capital portfolio. And that was how I met a guy called Brendan Bloomer, who went on to found Block One. And that was in, in 2012. And he sold me my first Bitcoin in 2013. You know, I'd love to say I backed up the truck, but I did not. I kind of, you know, back then, it, you know, you couldn't really trade it very well. You know, certainly out of Hong Kong, you know, unless you're going to do it for cash in person, you know, the entire ecosystem was still very early. And I, I didn't really think much of it, but it kind of kept nagging at me. And then I kind of moved on to other things. And Brendan kind of kept... But, you know, when Ethereum launched, you know, he pulled me into that and I'd invested in him, the company that was you know, later to become Block One. And the company was doing a lot of, and I was sitting on the board and the company was doing a lot of stuff on the side in the crypto space. So this was 20, I guess, 
2016. And it was kind of leading as that first ICO boom and doing a lot of consultancy advisory and getting paid in tokens. And then all of a sudden, these tokens would be worth multiples of original value. And there, you know, there was clearly something there. And that was kind of how Brendan connected with Dan Larimer and then obviously went on you know, to do EOS and the ICO. You know, I kind of was with them as a partner throughout that ICO period. In the meantime, I was launching a crypto research publication, kind of a retail-focused one, which was then bought by a publishing house out of the US, which has now gone public, actually. So I did that for a year, and that was fantastic because it was real, just hard work. You know, if you want to learn anything well, the best thing to do is write about it and write about it in a way that anyone can understand. So it really forced a lot of discipline in terms of understanding the entire space. I then subsequently joined Block One on the venture capital team for a few years. And then uh, I was in London for a while, joined um, a sports agency heading their digital asset and NFT strategy. And this was in 2021. This was kind of the NFT boom. And that conversation really started with this head agent you know, who had, you know, a stable of, you know, really high profile athletes in the UK. And, you know, they were all coming to him saying, hey, you know, so-and-so, you know, my team bait or whatever is, is, is doing this NFT thing and, you know, and coining it, what's your agency doing? So, you know, I joined him, you know, and to be honest, 95% of the job was really just saying no at that stage. And then I moved to Singapore last year and Cumberland reached out. And they were just getting Cumberland Labs started. So I joined them. You have a really interesting perspective because now in this space, you're an OG. You've been hodling Bitcoin since 2013. So there's a lot I kind of want to talk about. Like, What was the early days like when you got your first Bitcoin? It sounds like you kind of purchased it in person. What were you thinking about the asset class then? Because the space you were in, the traditional finance and banking sector, though you might not have been super passionate about it. There had to have been, in the early days, a ton of skepticism from your colleagues, your peers, people just incredulous that peer-to-peer money could become a thing. And back then, it was less than four years old. So when you first got your your first Bitcoin, you didn't sound like you were too enthralled with it. I mean, you were like, cool, digital money, I got it. Was there any sort of idea back when you got your first Bitcoin of what the crypto digital asset space would look like today? Was it kind of inconceivable to think that far out? What were your sort of initial insights into the space? I think a few things. You know, the first thing was back then it was such a small niche area. And the early years of Bitcoin were populated by some pretty interesting individuals. So I say that mildly. And I think about how much it's changed actually and how much it's institutionalized and grown up. When I think back to, you know, those conferences back in even 2015, 2016, even the Satoshi Roundtable back in 2018, you know, a lot of those people just are not really around anymore. It was still highly dominated by people who I think came into it with a lot more political kind of zeal, should I say, rather than opportunistic money-making you know, there were certainly plenty who saw that, but I think kind of the overall narrative really was, you know, it was a very libertarian kind of framework. There were, you know, I think it was really open to anyone, right? There was no, there was no gating on who 
was a Bitcoiner and who is a crypto person, right? It was just opt-in. So you had some super interesting people. I don't think it was really until Ethereum and then some of the early, you know, the other smart contract platforms, some of the delegated proof of stake ones, you know, really from Dan Larimer, you know, when I saw protocols like Steemit, and really the first thing that really flicked the light bulb for me was a peer-to-peer gambling betting company that was trying to come to market. And just the way they explained how the enterprise would live on Lencher in a completely decentralized way, fully transparent, and in a sense where everyone who owned tokens would you know, get some dividend, get some profit share from this ledger, from this business, which was open to anyone, completely accessible, completely trusted, trustless encoded on chain. I thought, you know, this is super, okay, that was kind of the light bulb. I think for a number of reasons, you know, I was over bullish in terms of what I expected from the space. Certainly, you know, think mid 23 now, I would have expected that initial thinking and vision that I had for what the space would become. It just hasn't really materialized. And there are reasons for that we we can come into, which, you know, a, a big part of them revolve around regulations. But there were some super crazy characters. There still are. But I mean, you know, back then it was... Yeah, it was real Wild West stuff. And when it came, you know, when it comes to friends and family, I mean, people just thought I was nuts. You know, I've always been like the first adopter, right? The first thing that comes out, Gen 1, I just, I want to try it. And, you know, it was the same thing with Bitcoin and later ETH and the other chains. But having said that, like, I'm also the person who first sold ETH at $9. The reasoning for that was, you know, I said, like, this is just never going to scale. Like, you're never going to be able to run like a scalable enterprise app on chain, on this chain. It's not going to happen. So I sold. Of course, I ended up buying back in at like 300 bucks or something. (laughs) So yeah, fun times. Yeah, I just finished reading Digital Gold by Nathaniel Popper, which is kind of the first four and a half, five years of Bitcoin's history. And it very much goes through the eccentric personalities, the libertarian types, the cypherpunks and the hackers who were trying for decades to build the digital cash. And then when Satoshi figured out a way to prevent the double spend attack, that was what really kind of opened the doors for Bitcoin to become a thing. So it's really interesting to kind of dig in and, and hear what it was like from folks who were, who were kind of there because I didn't get my first piece of any digital asset until 2017. And much like your experience, the first time I heard about Bitcoin, was in 2013. And it was just a small little blip in my mind. And then that was it. I didn't come back until the ICO boom. So I got my start in the NEO ecosystem, which was a competitor to EOS back in the day. And I can very much empathize with what you said earlier in our conversation, which is you dug in working on the publication and you were putting in your 10,000 hours learning about all these DPoS networks, different types of consensus mechanisms, things of this nature. So before we kind of jump into the work that you're doing now, I think that that was a nice launching point. So what was the name of your publication? It's called Crypto Capital. Crypto Capital. So when you were working on Crypto Capital, what were your metrics? What were you looking into? Was it anything and everything? Was it grokking proof of work and comparing it to other consensus mechanisms? What were sort of the things you were focusing on during this time? Which was what, 2014, 15? So Crypto Capital was 2017. And so the first piece I wrote to that audience, and I had a pretty large subscriber base, 
you know, north of 100,000 on the free one and then the paid one was less. The framework for that was I was identified this as an asset class, right, where there was a possibility to make some serious returns, right, and returns that you're not going to make anywhere else. And that was kind of what was so interesting, right? The kind of multiples that you could reasonably expect throughout 2016, 2017 was simply far above anything else that any average person would be able to access. Just period, end of story. Maybe if you're a fantastic options trader and you're buying some kind of deep out of the money, kind of event-driven you know, position, maybe, but you, you really couldn't. And so my subscribers were completely new to crypto, as was any, you know, most people. So and the general framework was you know, a monthly piece of anywhere from five to 7,000 words, you know, super deep dive, but written in a very accessible rate. I mean, my editor, I mean, he just whipped me into shape over the course of six months and just constantly you know, shorten your sentences. Don't use five words when two will do. And it was just it ground me down into that. So for my subscribers, it was, okay, I'd write a piece on, you know, and these were recommendations, right? Because there's a exception. If you're writing in a publication, you're perfectly at liberty to give buy and sell recommendations, you know, especially out of Hong Kong, because it falls under journalism and you're not giving any individual advice. I know that's a different thing in the US. So the idea was, okay, here's a crypto asset that I think is worth the pace in your portfolio. And, and the idea here was a lot of my audience, I would say the average age of my audience was in their 50s and 60s. There were people who actually had wealth and were managing their money, a few in their 20s and 30s, but really the vast majority actually were kind of middle-aged and they had money. They were kind of active, traditional investors. And it was always a case of, look, allocate 25,000 or 50,000 to this asset class and you start with Bitcoin. And, but, you know, Neo was a recommendation at one point. But to go through that, there's a lot of Da Fei. Yeah, Da Hong Fei. The CEO, Da Hong Fei. Yes, that's right. So you have to tell the story, you know, real understanding of the protocol explained to a layman. You would explain where you can buy it, how to buy it, how to store it. So I make videos on this is the wallet, this is how you download it. This is how you keep your, your private key. So it was the most grassroots ground publication, you know, a huge amount of, and I, I did it all myself. I mean, it was just me. I didn't have a research analyst. I had an editor and I had some distribution, you know, it was really just me. So, you know, any subscriber would be able to come on and understand exactly how to acquire $5,000 worth of Neo or Stella or Monero or Zencash, as it was called back at the time. I mean, obviously I date myself with some of those. It was very much, okay, here's why I think the risk-adjusted return of this is, is worth having you know, in your portfolio and explaining why and explaining how that position. That was the basic objective for me. You kind of move on from providing this newsletter, which had huge reach. Six figures in reach is kind of crazy, especially when you're speaking to a demographic that doesn't represent your typical crypto holder, which I believe is the majority 35 and under even today. So curious to hear a little bit about what has been the evolution in trends? Because from what I remember back in the day, 
it was very much learning. How is this protocol different from another? What's the wallet I need to download? Is it compatible with Ledger or Treasure or whatever hardware wallet you were using? And it was very much like tokenize everything. We're going to tokenize the world. Let's tokenize Airbnb. Let's tokenize Uber. And in the years since 2016, 2017, actual use cases have come out. And I'm sure you can speak to dozens when it comes to DeFi, NFTs, other distributed architecture. So as we're kind of coming into the arc of your story at Cumberland Labs, and maybe you can even use your experience, your five, six years in the EOS ecosystem. What has been the evolution of use cases and trends with blockchain networks? Because when I first got in, it was very wishy-washy. We're looking towards the future. We're going to tokenize everything. And, and now today, we're starting to see actual use cases. So just would be very curious to hear your insights into how trends have kind of grown and become more real since the time from when you were first starting to write these newsletters to the role you have today? One of the biggest things that I've certainly got wrong, and I think is really one of the biggest caps to real growth in the entire ecosystem, has been the inability to really issue or launch tokens that have any real concrete inherent economic investment value. It's certainly been one of the major things that I certainly got wrong. Because you know when I think about if you own a token in a protocol or in, in a DAP or some kind of on-chain enterprise, that token has the potential to be kind of a supercharged asset in terms of distributions of dividends, interest, royalties, profit shares, voting and governance. You know, it can unlock on MetaMask, you unlock a whole world of Web3. You know, as an asset, it has huge potential extensibility. But the problem is, is that you've got a regulatory and legal framework that looks at a token and says, okay, if you want to launch a token, you need to strip out anything that could even vaguely be presumed to be a security-like characteristic. I, you know, I remember, you know, look at some of the white papers back from 2015, 16, even early 2017, you know, you'd see white papers specifically talking about dividends and profit shares and all of that. And that was, okay, this, this is interesting, right? Obviously, that never really took off for obvious reasons for you know, security and regular, you know, exchanges can't trade them, so on and so forth. And so at the end of the day, what we got stuck with post-2017 was really a lot of tokens that really couldn't, there was no way to really value them. And the only way to profit for them was simply if someone was going to pay more than you paid for, and that was it on the expectation that someone else was then going to pay more. You know, in terms of the evolution of the, the system, I think it's still so, you know, in my opinion, so overly financialized. You know, you look at the biggest players in the spaces, it's exchanges. Exchanges, trading, borrow, lending. It's now more so in the derivatives and perp space as well. But it's so overly financialized that there's a million and one ways to trade and speculate. But there just aren't enough real underlying concrete businesses being built at the moment. And you know, a big part of that is because of the lack of the ability to have some of these characteristics, these security-like characteristics in tokens. That's really unfortunate. And obviously, we've seen the migration, you know, whether it's DeFi Summer and NFTs, and you know, we see these waves come in and come out. But the sense that I get now is that 
we're starting to see some actual quite interesting, I say much larger problems being addressed, you know, especially in things like payments, for example, where there is a very clear need to address you know, some of the legacy, say, cross-border remittance issues that really cannot be done through traditional finance at the moment. I have no way of being done in TradFi at the moment. So I think it's kind of heads down and build right now. But yeah, I'm still ultra pumped about the space. I feel like I'm a bit battle-hardened. I think the end of last year in particular was very difficult. But yeah, I'm super optimistic. Would you say that the current bear market we're in, and you specifically mentioned the end of last year, was that kind of one of the moments of more serious or tangible existential threat than any of the other moments that you've been through in the crypto space? Because you've been through Mt. Gox, you've been through the ICO boom and bust, China banning Bitcoin, unbanning Bitcoin, banning crypto, and now seemingly other administrative regions allowing or having new regulations, would you say that the digital asset space might have faced its most existential threat last year with the collapse of Luna and FTX and 3O's capital and all this other contagion? When I look back, the period where I was most alarmed for the future of the space was actually you know, the block size wars with Bitcoin. Because that to me was, you, know, you had a real vicious schism and Bitcoin was really and always has really been the foundation of the space. And it certainly was back then. And that period for me, it was like, oof, you know, this is really ugly. You know, and then obviously subsequent Bitcoin cash was, you know, less of an issue. But that to me, I think, was a period where I was really kind of quite worried about the future of Bitcoin. I've not had that worry since then. In terms of Terra and Three Arrows and FTX, you know, for me, I was like, really? Again? Like, really? These are the people who define the industry that I've spent I don't know how many years of my life in. And this is what everyone reads and thinks about, you know, when they think about the industry I work in. And that to me was just, that was painful. You know, right now, I think we're at the biggest pressure point is really coming from out of the US in terms of the US regulatory landscape. It's interesting though, because I mean, I, I've spent quite a lot of time in the Middle East in, you know, over the past few months, as well as Singapore and Hong Kong. And the UK even, you know, it's almost like a bifurcated crypto world, right? Everyone is so bearish in the US and understandably so. Middle East is kind of like Hong Kong 2017. It's unbelievably bullish, so much optimism here in Hong Kong as well. Super bullish. People are very optimistic. Regulators are being you know, pretty progressive. Same in the UK. So from the US perspective, it's hard, but I'm super encouraged to see other jurisdictions, which are kind of tearing the ball. Yeah, I came into the space just on the heels of the block size wars. So when I'm digging in and grokking what Bitcoin is, I'm also dealing with these very opinionated stances. So it was really hard to find a signal through the noise back then. But being in such an international industry, it is rough here in the US right now with lack of regulatory clarity. We have different regulators fighting over who's going to have jurisdiction over what. We have an action from Congress, but it definitely does help to be in an international space and to recognize a lot of the different regions that you just referenced. So I think despite all the kind of like undertones of maybe potential holdbacks when it comes to like international adoption right now, you know, different regulatory agencies across the world, 
there is a lot of opportunity. And I think that your experience in EOS, your experience digging deep in 2016, 17 into these various different protocols kind of put you into a really unique position that you have now as COO at Cumberland Labs. So to kind of get a little bit of understanding as to what you do and, and what Cumberland Labs does, could I ask for a two-part question? A, could you explain like I'm five, what Cumberland Labs is? And then B, could you also provide maybe some of the benefits that comes from being an incubation branch of DRW, which is a global trading and market making company? Yeah, sure. So I'll actually start with DRW because that's really where it all starts with Cumberland. So you know, DRW is a Chicago-based proprietary trading shop founded by Don Wilson about 30 years ago now, about 1,800 employees globally. They are a trading powerhouse. It's a very flat org structure. It's really traders, engineers, developers, a lot of tech, low latency, high frequency stuff. You know, they got into the crypto space in around 2013 with Cumberland. You know, at the time, 2013 was a difficult time for a company like DRW necessarily to be going all in on crypto. So they set up a, you know, a separate entity. And Cumberland have you know, since become, I believe, the largest OTC market maker in the space, certainly one of the top in, in Vol. So they're kind of a great, very well-run market maker, liquidity provider in the space. Cumberland Labs is an initiative that was started last year. And so we're about a team of 20, 25 you know, developers, product managers, engineers, and builders. And effectively, we do two things. We come up with ideas internally of products and businesses to build. We'll scope them out. We'll build out a POC. We'll put something into the market, test it. And if it looks like it's you know an enterprise that has legs, we'll look to bring in a co-founder, CEO, and externalize that as a separate business. And Obviously, when we're looking to build businesses and incubate businesses externally, we're looking at businesses where basically there are four Ps, right? People, product, potential, and partnerships. So people, obviously, we're looking for fantastic domain experts. You know, you don't need to be an entrepreneur, but definitely need to have the grit to go out and start a company. You know, the product, obviously... It's got to go through the same kind of typical rigorous analysis that you would apply to any kind of venture investment. The potential is obviously more about TAM and you know how big, how can this take X percent of an existing market or will it create a new market itself? And then the partnerships are, what's the leverage that DRW and Cumberland and that relationship and network and expertise can provide to this business? Um, so have internal businesses that we incubate. And then externally, we're looking to write substantial first check rounds, a combination of capital and resources into super early stage teams. So you know, this is really pre-product. For us, it requires a big swing of the bat. You know, it's a substantial check size. So we're looking for great people with great ideas. We're looking to give two years worth of runway to help support on every level, bringing that idea and business to, into fruition. And we have all of the additional skill set that we apply, whether it's legal and regulatory, you know, finance, you, know, you name it, you know, the marketing and the PR side of it. So we look to take 
a relatively small number of high conviction bets when it comes to external incubation. And that's really what Cumberland Labs does. We look to build businesses. How are you guys going about the search for these businesses? Are there specific verticals that you're interested in? You mentioned earlier that few use cases are actually starting to shine right now. So do you have kind of a radar or a map for the types of projects, companies, teams that you guys are looking for? Yeah, we've got kind of a short list of projects and so I say sectors within the space that we're quite interested in. And it's certainly on the derivatives exchange side of things. We're super interested in anything involving funky and unique applications for stablecoins, whether it's stablecoin trading or even FX stablecoin trading is another one that we're super interested in. Payments is another. And then within that, anything we're quite big believers in, you know, the potential of ZK as application for a lot of the financial components of the crypto space. So we're very much open-minded. The reality is we do just need to see, like we have to think about what can we bring, not only from labs, but from Cumberland, DRW, what can we bring extra that this company, this idea can't really get from anywhere else, right? Could it be market making on day one? Could it be you know, a really solid connection with our carbon trader, because this is what they're looking to build. You know, anything like that, but we can add a, a significant edge to that company. That's kind of what we're looking to do. This is kind of a personal question. I've been covering NEO since 2017. I've written the obituary for 95% of projects that launched the token on this network. And I'm sure you've seen more than 90% during your tenure at EOS of projects launch and fail. So how does that experience... This is a double-edged sword. How does that experience, A, sharpen your ability to hone in on the teams that are really focusing on the right things? But also, B, how do you keep your positivity when you're speaking with so many pre-product teams? How do you just... Keep a positive perspective without thinking like, oh, I've heard this before, or I've heard somebody with this zest and zeal speak like this and watch dozens of these projects fail. What does that sort of experience kind of lend? It's quite hard sometimes to be talking with founders who you know, have all the enthusiasm in the world, but an idea that it's very difficult to say, like, I really just don't see how that's going to work. I don't see a future for this project. And I don't see a future for you know, effectively your idea. And I think one of the biggest things is that people just get married to their ideas and they become very emotionally connected with their idea. It becomes almost like a child or something like that. And so you have to be very cautious when you know, you're dealing, especially with first-time founders. People who've done it before, they come with a strong convictions, loosely held type approach, which is ideal. And that's the best thing you can find in a founder because it denotes that they have that conviction, but also the intellectual humility to be able to take in opposing viewpoints and course correct and pivot you know, and change. I think that's one of the biggest differentiators. Because again, there's no barrier to entry to put a deck together and go out and go try raise money, right? It's anyone can do that. There's nothing you need to pass to be able to do that. 
certainly, you know, while I was at, at ELCC, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of decks and pitches that I went through. And yeah, it was certainly difficult. You know, there were certainly times where, you know, people get angry because you're not going to invest in them. And, you know, it's difficult. But at the same time, I've kind of gone through that process myself. And I know that you learn from it. And I would say for me personally, my entire career, the biggest lessons and the biggest growth have always come from failure. Always. You really learn nothing from success and everything from failure. You know, that's kind of one of the things I do, you know, because I, I, I mentor a lot of people. And I speak, you know, stay in touch with a lot of people over the years as they update me on their projects and they've done around and a lot of them have, you know, obviously shut down or going out of business at the moment. And so I, I've been there myself and it's gut-wrenching, but it's a real learning process and that's the best you could take from it. That was great advice and kind of insight. But on the flip side, there are a handful of products that Cumberland has helped incubate and there are now beta releases and there are actual releases of tangible products. So I do want to talk a little bit about some of the successes that have come out of Cumberland. So I think that there's maybe four kind of premier products. I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about Digitali, which was described to me as a sort of Wikipedia for NFTs. So could you just share a little bit more about this product and kind of what drives you guys and makes you so excited for it? Yeah. So that idea was a super simple one. And it was really kind of on the back of a pivot. You know, we originally we were looking to explore the NFT space. And this is kind of when I joined, this was on the table. And it was really more about on-chain NFT search and analytics and a way to use it a way to create a Google NFTs where you can fully index everything on chain. And we did some experimentation, you know, tried on a few POCs but really couldn't come up with anything very compelling. And so we really pivoted. And the idea was, you know, I own some NFTs. I'm not a DGN NFT trader or anything like that. But we kind of found that if you were trying to find out something about a particular collection in terms of like just the kind of level of information that you would expect from Wikipedia, right? So objective, referenced, you know, clear, transparent. So no hype, no fud, just very straightforward knowledge, shall we say. You couldn't really find much of that in the NFT space, right? You'd have to troll around through a Twitter, maybe a Discord channel. You'd maybe go to the NFT, the artist or the collection website, but you're not really going to get much in the way of impartial information there. You're not going to, certainly not going to get it from Twitter. So it was like, well, hang on. So why don't we look at creating a Web3 wiki for NFTs. So each collection will have their own page. You know, we'll start the framework of it. And following on from that, anyone who wants to add you know, content to a particular page can simply connect their MetaMask wallet that launches an editor. They can add some content, a reference, submit it, and earn some reward points. Obviously, we can't say token or anything like that at this stage, but for now, reward points. And so the idea was, okay, this could be a super useful resource for not only kind of existing members of the community, but also new entrants, right? So, you know, a few months ago, Amazon started selling NFTs. I think Google Play Store, I think today or yesterday, 
has kind of changed their policies on NFTs. You know, we're clearly in a period of extended depression for NFTs when it comes to volumes in terms of trading volumes. But, you know, our belief is, look, NFTs will come back. They will resurge. And when they do, people will need a reliable source of information, you know, for every collection, you know, not only just about the founders and the history, but also about the utility, functionality, rarity traits, and probably most important of all, you know, the ownership rights. If you were to go and ask any kind of random NFT holder and ask them to describe to you the rights that they hold or that they think they hold by holding this particular NFT, I think you'd find that most people just either don't know, can't find out, or don't really care. The reality is, considering how NFTs are positioned as this real kind of unique one-of-one ownership asset, the reality is, is that when it comes to IP, copyright, and licenses, it's hugely disparate across collections. And this is a particular point of information that you know we want to keep adding to our collection pages because we think that look, once we get 90% of the information on a page, it becomes the de facto resource for people, right? And it's, we're not hyping, we're not shilling, no fired, anything like that. It's just pure objective information. And it's really open to anyone who just wants to connect a wallet. You know, there's no transactions, there's no gas. You don't even need anything in your wallet, right? It's just purely as a means of us being able to kind of log your contribution to a particular wallet. That is digitally, that's the platform. So we launched that literally just a few weeks ago. Yeah. And it's been a super interesting experience thus far. Is the platform cross-chain and are you guys in beta? Are you seeking beta testers right now? Yeah. So we're in beta at the moment. So this is kind of the public beta. So we launched with around 15, what you'd call kind of complete pages, like complete wiki pages. And then there's like another hundred with what we call relatively bare bones information so that it's very easy to people, you know, for anyone who wants to earn reward points, which will obviously play a fundamental role in kind of quote, any future token distributions is a very easy way to do it, you know, just purely by, you know, contributing, contributing content. So, you know, that's kind of where we are now, public beta, really just in the stage of kind of getting those first users who are giving us great feedback. You know, that's one thing about the NFT community is people are not shy about telling you what you could do better. So yeah, that's been super helpful as well. Some of the other products that are under the Cumberland umbrella focus on providing like transparent information for DeFi bridging DeFi protocols to centralized exchanges. So do you want to share a little bit about maybe Hashnode or Expand Network or some of the other products that you guys are incubating? Yeah. So Expand was an interesting one. Again, that kind of came out of a kind of a core use requirement out of the trading desks at DRW and our DeFi trading desks, which were, we're looking for a a single API to be able to connect on a read-write basis to multiple chains and there really wasn't any so we kind of scoped it started building it there's quite a lot of interesting engineering that goes into being able to especially when it comes to writing on transaction you know writing transactions on chain while that you know without taking or holding your private key so it's completely non-custodial but it's a single api adapter which allows you to read write across 
dozens and dozens of chains, but it's layer one, twos, DeFi protocols. We've got the likes of Dargate, you name it. So we're kind of constantly adding more chains. And you know, that launch was launched a couple of months ago. And you know, the CEO has just joined Demo. He's the former head of sales for Block Demon. So he's kind of leading the sales effort and the and the growth effort now. And that company's now being kind of fully externalized. Hashnode's a good example of an internal incubation. Founder was a guy called Leo Mizuhara. So he was a ex DRW trader, so ran the bond options trading desk, systematic trading. You know, super smart guy, you know, kind of a developer background. And that idea was, okay, how do we create on-chain financial products, right? So typically, if I'm going to buy, say, you know, some kind of structured note, and, you know, my background was in, was in you know, structured derivatives, structured finances, you know, especially on the investment side is very, very opaque, right? You don't really know how much money is being taken out of the trade, how much is the broker taking, how much is the dealer taking, how much is the trader taking. And so what Hashnet does, it combines you know, a traditional front-end fund structure with a fully on-chain asset management platform. So I was the first customer because obviously we, uh, we are own dog food. So you know, I put 100,000 into a, you know, a collateralized ETH put note um, so I can see my note on chain pays me a, a weekly coupon. So that kind of asset, that structured asset is completely on chain, fully collateralized. So it's credit risk free in the sense that, you know, even if hash note and the market maker were to disappear tomorrow, my funds are still on chain. And if I've kind of used MPC to set up that wallet, I can actually redeem my assets. You know, things like that, which are you know, super interesting, you know, to look at. And yeah, the response for Hashnet has been, been really, really interesting, you know, especially on, you know, some of the high yielding strategies as well. And obviously a bit much more of a, a fit, I think, for DRW and Cumberland than perhaps the NFT space. Absolutely. Kind of nearing the end of our time and wrapping up, I want to use this opportunity to kind of pull from your experience being at Cumberland Labs for the past year and arguably working in an internet native space where you can work with any team from anywhere around the world. But you're currently located in Hong Kong. And in June, these very favorable regulations for digital assets rolled out. So I'm curious to hear what your outlook is on potential projects or teams that you're going to incubate that might be local to your region. Do you think that there's going to be more of a geographic draw to Hong Kong based off of these regulations or maybe even in, in the Middle East or UK based off of potential positive looming regulations? Do you think that geographies are going to be able to attract teams that can build in those regions? Absolutely. You know, I think the Middle East is certainly, you know, when it comes to attracting boots on the ground, I think, you know, Dubai has taken, you know, a pretty strong lead on that front, really, I think over the last two years, very much so. I mean, Hong Kong is still, it's not really a magnet for early stage founders, especially kind of people to kind of come to Hong Kong. Hong Kong, you know, is not a place where people migrate to to start a business. It's never really been like that. You know, places like Dubai, because you can still live at a, you know, a reasonably cost-effectively 
you know, Hong Kong's pretty expensive. But I would say across the four primary regions, whether it's the Emirates, UK, Singapore, and Hong Kong, I would say from certainly a more institutional perspective, I think the UK and Hong Kong are very, very well positioned. And the UK has an unbelievable opportunity, right? I mean, the US loss is their gain. And if if they kind of manage to really get a bit of a progressive forward thinking kind of regulatory framework in place, then the UK could well become, you know, London could easily become the global center of kind of blockchain, like easily. It very much depends on you know, the government direction. And it was interesting to see at least Rishi Sunak noting Andreessen's first non-US office opening in London, right? That was quite interesting. But, you know, certainly Hong Kong, I think, into a really, really interesting 12 months, right? There's a lot of, there's still a lot of money here. There's a lot of southbound capital out of China into Hong Kong. So if I were to say real solid blue chip blockchain projects, I think will really come out of London and Hong Kong over the next 12 months. That's really interesting insight. So if there's any founders or early stage builders who are interested in connecting with you or speaking with Cumberland Labs, what's the best way that they can go about opening the lines of communication? Gosh, we're available on, like I'm on Twitter, DMs are open, go to our cumberlandlabs.io website. There's just a contact form there. Yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn, Telegram, at Church House. I mean, anyone who wants to uh, get a message to Cumberland Labs or me certainly won't struggle to do so. Awesome. Well, Tama, this was a really fascinating conversation. It was cool to pull your experience from a decade now in this space. And really, really cool to hear about your perspective, your regional outlook, the products that you guys are incubating, and really where we're going forward as a space as a whole. So I appreciate the time you took today to speak with us in the Smart Economy podcast. No, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, have a great night and uh, cheers. Thanks, man. Take it easy. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was super interesting to hear Thomas' takes on the inherent financialization of the broader blockchain space, but how those features can't really be tapped into because of regulations that might be holding project founders back. It was also really cool to hear about the different products that Cumberland Labs has incubated and how they were each conceptualized from real-world needs. I also found it intriguing to hear that Tama found the block size wars between 2015 and 2017 more concerning for the blockchain industry than the spectacular collapses and frauds of 2022. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.